and turn into the scriptures to John chapter 10. We John chapter 10, we will begin at verse 1 and read through verse 21. Join with me in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Where he, When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand. They did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? And others are saying, were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would use use your word among us this morning. Help me as best I can to communicate this with clarity. And Lord, send forth your spirit. Apply it to each heart. Give them understanding. Give us understanding, Lord. And strengthen us in the faith as we turn to look at Jesus here in this passage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. I'm just now realizing a couple of things. One, this pulpit's not big enough. We need to... I'll see what we can do. This pulpit's not big enough. Need room for space. Number two, I haven't been here in a few weeks. And it's always good to come home. Uh, we have attended church while we were gone. We always try to find another local PCA church to go to, and it's just not quite the same. They can be good, but they're not home. So we are thrilled to be back. I'm thrilled to be back. Another thing I'm noticing, this is becoming a pattern. I believe uh, I got to preach the first Sunday of the new year last year, um, which, which is interesting. I'm not one, I'm sure I asked this last year, I'm not one for resolutions, but how many here are? People make resolutions? Not many. Okay, because then the second question was who keeps them? So I would assume it would be fewer, right? 
Well, it is, you know, there's something about the calendar, the turning, the changing of the seasons, the turning of the times, which sometimes makes people consider things. You know, maybe a change of career. Uh, maybe, I'll bet you the most common one is weight loss from the current, from the, from the seasons we just made ourselves through. Uh, but we sometimes take these seasons, we do evaluations, we have a tendency maybe to think a little bit bigger outside of our normal mundane daily lives. And as I was thinking about that for this time of year, I was just inspired a little bit, I think, by John, which is why we're in John this morning, only I first went to John uh, chapter 20, verse 30. Uh, actually, verse 31, because in here, John tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John. And it's interesting. So in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John had a point. He had a purpose. And the gospel was given in support of his purpose. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing in him, you might have life. John's putting it to you. John is trying to confront you with the person and work of Christ and force you to consider what that means. And so I thought, that's an appropriate place for us to start the new year. That's his whole purpose. That's his whole plan here. Now, he has a phrase like this in in, in one of his early epistles, only there he says that these things have been written so that you might know that you have life. So for people dealing with assurance of salvation, you might go there. But here he's trying to confront people who may not have considered Christ at all, and who maybe need to face up and have a decision, make a decision. And so that's my goal this morning. And I'm perfectly aware (laughs) that I'm preaching to the choir somewhat. Most people here already have trusted in Christ, have have confessed their sin, have come to him, endeavor to follow him. You know, that's great. You can be encouraged by this. We can even learn something about this as we look at what it means for Jesus to be a good shepherd which we will spend some time on in a few moments. But yet, in any crowd this size, in any number of people this numerous who have attended church for any amount of time, there's somebody who has been playing games or putting things off. I think it's just a fact of life. And I just don't want to let you go today. Just don't want to let you out. You know, it wasn't in my sermon notes, but I have been in my mind this morning going to Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has caused the iniquities of us all to fall upon him. See, it starts with all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And so you who have not turned to Christ, you need to understand, you are a sheep. You are a sheep. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, but that's a general statement. It's meant to be universal, but it's general, and some of us try to hide in generalities. Yeah, 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 I'm a sheep, but I'm not as bad as the other sheep. But he goes on, each of us has turned to his own way. See, he points the finger. Each of us has turned to his own way. You are a sheep. You are in need of a good shepherd. And the Lord has caused the iniquities of us all to fall upon him. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we're going to look at that a little bit more this morning. First, for our passage this morning, though, we need to set a little bit of general context. And since I don't get the opportunity to preach like Seth does, uh, you know, two years or so in Genesis. Um, I get to start with a big context and kind of work it down because we don't want to divorce a text out of its context uh, because that can lead you to trouble. So let me, I've already mentioned the Gospel of John. 
and what his ultimate goal is. And in the accomplishment of this goal to confront people with Christ, he writes an account. And if you want to divide the gospel, if you need an outline for the gospel, you would divide it approximately in half. Approximately in half. This is a rough division. Don't, don't hold it too precisely. But the first 12 chapters are often called the book of signs. The 13 through 21 are often called the book of passion. And that's because there's a turning point around chapter 13 where we're down to the last week, the last few days of Christ leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. And that starts in earnest with the upper room discourse there in chapter 13. But in chapters 1 through 12, which is where our passage lays, it's called the book of signs. And this is where John, for the most part, is presenting his case. And he's talking about the works, the words of Jesus, the signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And so he's placing this in all kinds of different ways and methods that he uses. And John John is a little bit different than the other Gospels. There's a lot of figures of speech. There's a lot of uh, metaphor, which is what our passage will be somewhat, well, very much so today. But the book of signs, he's confronting us with Jesus. He is making a case from Jesus' statements. And in this, in the midst of this, he then also adds several, several I am statements. And so Jesus will say things like in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. This follows on the heels of him preaching or teaching and the multitudes had gathered. And you know the story where they feed the 5,000 with just a couple of loaves and fishes. And so because they were fed, the multitudes are gathering force and they're following hard after Jesus. And then he says, look, you come to me for more bread, but I am the bread. You're missing the point. And so he uses this metaphor to make a point. He says, I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. I'm like the manna in the wilderness which God gives to his people. Only I come that they might have life, have life to the full. I am the bread of life. A couple chapters later, he says things like, I am the light of the world. You know, the whole world lay in darkness, but I am the light of the world, and he who walks in me does not walk in darkness. Well, we come to another one of these I am statements, and our, the focus of our text here will be in verse 11, or 11 and following, but here's our I am statement. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, we're not quite there yet. We've got to narrow our context down. So as we come to our passage, the chapter as a whole, Jesus has once again been in the midst of a controversy with the religious leaders of the day. Now, also as we go through those first 12 chapters, many people accept Jesus, but he also makes enemies. And so through these 12 chapters, tension is rising and conflict is is coming. A couple of times already, they've already picked up stones wanting to stone him, but he eluded their grasp because it was not his time. But yet conflict is rising. And as we come to chapter 9, we see that Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. He'd made some clay, applied it to his eyes, and uh, told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he washes and he receives his sight. But he did this on the Sabbath, which gets him in trouble once again with the Pharisees or the, the, the religious leaders of the day. See, the Pharisees considered themselves shepherds. The Pharisees were not descendants of the priests, uh, the, the Pharisees had been around as a party, as religious leaders in the community for a couple of hundred years. They were kind of the ones who founded and ran the synagogues, which was kind of like the local church that Jews, Jewish people would go to and learn the law. Um, but they considered them shepherds of the people, and they had already made it known because of their opposition to Jesus that if you confess Jesus as the Messiah, uh, as the one sent by God, that you were going to be thrown out of the synagogue. So you can see there's this head-to-head confrontation that is just building. And in fact, over this man born blind, when they called him in to testify and tell about how Jesus had healed him and who this Jesus is, he made a good confession. 
And because he did not give in to their intimidation or their threats of force, they kicked him out of the, of the synagogue, which was a social ostracism. He was no longer allowed in. However, in verse 35 of chapter 9, Jesus found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped. Do you see the conflict? Do you see the conflict rising? Who Jesus is and who the Pharisees uh, or whom the Pharisees have rejected. So, we've come to our passage. And you'll notice down in verse 41 of chapter 9 too, verse 40 and 41, that the Pharisees were present during this exchange between Jesus and the man born blind. And Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. And those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? See, they understood the insult. Jesus was fighting back. And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Very condemning. Very condemning. And so Jesus then continues on. And we will not reread the passage, but he tells us the parable or the allegory of the good shepherd. Now, some Bibles call it a parable. Some call it an allegory. There actually is a difference between those two, which I learned only this week. One is more like a simile parable. One is more like a metaphor, but both are figures of speech. Jesus identifies what he's about to say as a figure of speech in, in verse 6 because he says, look, this figure of speech that he spoke, they didn't get. They didn't understand. So he, again, is proving their blindness as he speaks. He tells this parable or allegory of shepherds. Um, and as we approach a parable or allegory, you also need to know that these can be tricky. Uh, you know, by their very nature, they're not meant to necessarily be specific and factual, but they use images and pictures to make a point, sometimes a powerful point, but you do have to be careful so that you don't take it too far. Um, not every point here has to, be, uh, has to have a, a big meaning. But here, Jesus compares and contrasts true and false shepherds. And true shepherds are the ones who enter into the sheepfold the right way and successfully lead the sheep, successfully lead the sheep. The shepherd calls out to them. They follow him. The picture here is of a sheepfold that has maybe several different flocks in it. And so the shepherd, the one whom the doorkeeper recognizes, he lets him in. He comes in and he calls his own sheep. It says that he knows him by name. One thing I learned this week, though, is that the name is not necessarily the important part, because a false shepherd could come in and call him by name and they won't follow because they don't recognize his voice. They don't recognize the way he says it. They don't know him. But the good shepherd comes in, the legitimate shepherd comes in, calls out his own, and they come and they gather behind him and then he leads him. He leads them, which is something that they still do supposedly in the Near East with sheep, 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 sheep to this day which is just an interesting cultural point because in the Near East, they, they lead their sheep and they follow the voice of their shepherd, while as in the West, we drive our livestock. It's just an interesting comparison. If you made that comparison today, I imagine you would have to call the Pharisees the Western shepherds because they were the ones using fear, intimidation, whatever it took to pressure. Okay, But in the Near East, the good shepherd leads. He goes before, leads them in paths of plenty and of safety. And so those are the good shepherds compared to the bad shepherds or the strange shepherds. The strange shepherd, they simply will not follow. And it's interesting to consider this brief five verses metaphor. I think you could see it if you wanted to apply it back to chapter 9 then, the Pharisees and Jesus and their dealings with this man born blind. You know, who was the good shepherd? Who, in the end, called out to? 
this man and whom did he hear and whom did he follow? It's a picture of salvation. They heard the voice of the good shepherd. He did, and he worshiped him. And who were the shepherds that whose voice he, he rejected? They were the Pharisees. But the Pharisees didn't get this. In verse 6, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus backs up like a good teacher does, and instead of saying the same thing over again, he, he picks two points to be more specific on and more pointed on. And the first of these points is in verses 7 through 10. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I'm the door. He picks one item out of the metaphor to press home. I am the door. As the door, we can derive from these verses that he is the one who guards the entrance to the sheep. So he is the one that provides security for the sheep. But he also provides this ingress and egress. He allows them to come in and out. He's the man in charge here, but he's looking after the sheep. And when he takes them out, and he leads them out, he leads them into plentiful pastures. And so if you sum, sum this up, we can get two points from this. One, under the good shepherd, there is safety, security, and there is plenty. And this Jesus sums up because he says, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. But if you look at the second main point there, they say there's only one way in. There's only one way in, and Jesus is the door. Okay, It doesn't do us any good to tell people in general that there's more way than one to be reconciled to God or to come back into, uh, to, to become a Christian, to enjoy this Christian life, this life under the good shepherd. There's only one way. And in that, this parallels John 14, 6, you know, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. This is just another way of saying the same thing. So Jesus is the door. And that brings us to what I think is the heart of the passage here, starting in verse 11. I think it focuses on verse 11, and everything else is explanatory. And from verse 11, which says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We're going to draw two points because there are some of us that have to have outlines, right? Me too. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Point number one, I am the good shepherd. And point number two, I am the good shepherd. We're going to keep it that simple this morning. I am the good shepherd, and I am the good shepherd. And this is Jesus speaking. I take this, you know, this is one of those times where the English doesn't quite give you the emphasis here, but I assure you due to the structure of the original languages here, just the way it's written and the way the, letter, the, the words are stacked together emphasizes that Jesus is the one and only shepherd, and he is the good one. Whoever else you want to compare him to, whoever's come before, even previous good shepherds, I mean, Moses, after all, was faithful in God's house, was he not? He was a shepherd of God's people, but Moses was still a sinful man. And so by contrast to any who have gone before, whether they were relatively good or bad, Jesus is the good shepherd. So he is one specific shepherd. He is the good shepherd. We're going to look at that. And then he is the good shepherd. And this just means that he is the extreme. He is the ideal. He is the one righteous, good, holy shepherd. Now, first, let's look at the good shepherd. He's a specific shepherd. He is a unique shepherd. He's even an expected 
shepherd. And I toyed with where I was going to say this, but I'm going to because I see the McShays are here with us today, and I want to ask the kids, have you ever seen Kung Fu Panda? No. Wow. So this won't mean as much to you. (laughs) But let me just say it anyway. Go watch Kung Fu Panda. Okay, the hero in Kung Fu Panda is a panda, surprisingly, named Poe. Poe dreamed of Kung Fu. Poe wanted to, uh, he wanted to learn Kung Fu, but he was obviously not well equipped for it because he's a panda. And yet, somehow, through the fickle accidents of fate, whatever it is, he is appointed or, or identified as the dragon warrior who was to come and save the village. Great. But the bad guy there is Tai Lung, and he finally, after getting out of prison after several years, he comes back, and he always wanted to be the dragon warrior, so it leads to conflict, as you can imagine. And when he first sees the guy whom he has to fight to, to be the dragon warrior, he sees a panda. And he's like, but you're a panda. He can't believe this is his opponent. You're a panda. You're just a big, fat panda. Well, Poe says, I'm not just a big, fat panda. I'm the big, fat panda. He is the one the prophecy spoke of. So when you watch the movie, enjoy it. But when you hear the big fat panda, think the good shepherd. Okay, make the connection there. The good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And just like Poe, Jesus was the one prophesied about. Jesus was the one they were waiting for. Jesus was a specific shepherd. See, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Jesus did not wake up and say, what what way can I speak to them today to make them understand? No, 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 no. He, he identified himself as the one that had been foretold of. And the way these things are foretold throughout the Old Testament, showing us the unity of Scripture, fascinates me. I love tracing ideas and themes and stuff from the beginning to the end. And just like when we look at the seed of the woman in Genesis, the seed of the woman will crush the, the, the head, the, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And so we see through Genesis then the tale of two seeds, as Seth spent much time on. We see throughout the Old Testament the identification of the seed, first through Abraham and then through David and then the son of David who would come and crush the head of the serpent, identified as Jesus. So we see seed throughout the Old Testament. Shepherd is like that. It doesn't necessarily start out in the full-blown prophecy, but it starts out with an idea woven into the culture. And so early on, what were the people of God? They were shepherds. So it's a very familiar idea with him. When it comes to uh, who was the first explicit shepherd in the Bible? Abel. So right after the fall and the restoration and right after the promise of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, who are the next, the, the next two characters introduced are Cain and Abel. And Cain was a worker of ground, but Abel was a keeper of flocks. And Cain, tale of two seeds, remember? You know, Cain was the seed of the serpent, while Abel was the seed of the woman. Okay? And Cain slew Abel, but that wasn't the last word because the seed could not be extinguished, the seed of the woman. Well, in the same way, Abel was the shepherd. That's very interesting. Shepherds are identified all throughout Genesis, especially all the patriarchs were shepherds, and when they showed up there in front of Pharaoh, what did Joseph say to tell Pharaoh you were? We're shepherds. And it goes all throughout their history. They're great kings. David, where was he when Samuel came looking for the next king of Israel? He wasn't even allowed to come in. He wasn't present because he was out tending the sheep. And yet the people, when they came to make him king, said, look, God has said you will be the shepherd of Israel. He was identified as the shepherd of Israel, the king. He's a shepherd. God is identified as a shepherd in the Old Testament. Jacob does that in Genesis 48 when he says, The Lord has been my shepherd all my life until now. So we see, we see that's an interesting introduction of an idea of a divine shepherd. 
We have the man shepherd, we have a divine shepherd. And as we go throughout the New Testament or the Old Testament, these things just continue to grow. These things continue to grow. So we have a human shepherd, we have a divine shepherd, we have a kingly shepherd. And who can, who can think? Well, by the time we get to the psalmist, we see the heavenly shepherd even more clearly. And then there's Psalm 23, which everybody knows, at least the first line, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And because he's my shepherd, I shall not want. See how the shepherd is a divine being as well. Now, by the time of the exile, they ran into trouble. The exile, because Israel's sins had grown high to the heavens and God decided it was time to discipline his people, he sends them into exile. But when you come to the prophets, such as Jeremiah 23 or Ezekiel 34, which we will not read because they're extensive, God judges the shepherds. He says, look, it's not just a societal breakdown, but the leaders that I have given you have also failed in their task. See, they're not good shepherds. In fact, they've gone so far out of the way, not only, to, not only did they not fulfill their responsibilities, in Ezekiel it tells us that they took advantage of the sheep for their own gain. And so God pronounces judgments on the shepherds of his people specifically, and he says, I will remove you, and I will replace you with others. But even more importantly, he says in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he says, he says I myself will come and gather my sheep. I myself will come. There will be under shepherds, okay? But Jesus, God himself, God himself will come and gather his sheep from all the lands where I have scattered them, even to the ends of the earth. See, he universalizes this. He's like, I myself am going to come. I'm going to make this right. Where the shepherds have failed, I'm going to send one who will be the good shepherd. And then, of course, in Micah, is the prophecy prior to Christmas, what do we hear? Because out of Bethlehem, one will go forth who will shepherd my people Israel. And obviously, where was Jesus born? Okay, so Jesus is the good shepherd. He did not say this in a vacuum. He is the fulfillment of the promises of God to his people. I am just always in awe of following something like that through the scriptures. Do you understand the time that this covers? Do you understand the people and the numerous people and places that God spoke this through and yet the unity we see testifying that this book is not just any old book. This is the word of God to you. And what he has promised he brings to fulfillment and in this case brings it to fulfillment in his son who is the good shepherd. The one that we've been waiting for. The one that we need because we have gone astray and turned to our own way. So Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and promises and all the things that God wove into their culture to prepare them to receive their Messiah who would come and be the good shepherd. And this shepherd, if we say it as a summary, the shepherd has, is human, the shepherd is divine, the shepherd is a descendant of David, he is kingly. Do you see Jesus and Jesus alone fulfilling all of these one and only God-man, the one God who came in the incarnation and took on flesh, the only one as a descendant of David according to the the flesh and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit and who is God himself pre-incarnate. Only in Jesus are these things fulfilled. He is the good shepherd. This ought to cause you to worship. God sent us Jesus, our shepherd. That's the good shepherd. So in John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But he also says, I am the good shepherd. Now the good is one word we often use in comparison. This one's, this one's good, this one's better. 
But here the way, like I said, it's structured. It's not just good. This is good. This is the superlative, even though the word itself does not. He is the good shepherd when you take it in combination. He is good, first and foremost, because of the second half of verse 11, because he lays down his life for the sheep. He is good. Three times he says this. The second half of verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You drop down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. And then the end of 15, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You drop down to 17. For this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And then down in verse 18 says, at least in part, my, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down. I lay it down. The good shepherd. See the repetition there. And since we're all good students of Mark Furtado, we know that repetition is a way of making emphasis. And so what is a good shepherd? What makes him good, what identifies him as the good shepherd, is that he lays down his life for the sheep. Now, also in this language, you know, it's, it's really interesting. This is one of those things where it hinges on the preposition for, for the sheep. You know, the word for lays down is not necessarily a particularly special word. He lays down his life. It could mean to put or to place. I can put something up on a table. So that word is not necessarily super special. But this preposition for the sheep, the way John uses it almost anywhere in his Gospels, has, has sacrificial tones, has substitutionary tones. So he lays down his life for the sheep. You could say he lays them down on behalf of the sheep because of their need. You could say he lays his life down instead of the sheep, in spite of what they deserve. He lays down his life for the sheep. He sees the danger coming. He sees the stroke coming on the sheep, which is meant for them, which is earned by them, which they deserve, and he puts himself in that place. And so since he lays down his life for the sheep, he is the good shepherd. In verses 12 and 13, he speaks of the hireling, and he says, he who is the hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them, and he flees because he's a hired hand, not concerned about the sheep. But that's not how the good shepherd responds. By comparison, to him it's personal. In verse 14 and 15, we see that the good shepherd, he knows his own. He knows them, and he takes it personally. He knows them. He even says that I know them and they know me, just like I know the Father, and the Father knows me. There's an intimacy there. He knows his sheep. Up in verse 3, it says that he calls his sheep by name. See this personal, individual knowledge of his sheep? And when he sees danger coming, he's not like the hireling that runs away. He leads them. He puts himself out front. He takes the stroke that is due. And because of this, he is the good shepherd. And also, he is the good shepherd because he does not just lose his life in some misguided attempt to save the sheep. He doesn't struggle against the enemy and I did the best I could, but I lost. He doesn't lose his life. He lays it down. His life is not taken from him. Verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it up again. See, if it had been taken from him, he did not have the authority or power to take it up again. But he laid it down on his own initiative and under his own power, and he took it up again. Yes, the Father raised him from the dead. Yes, the Son took his life up again and rose from the dead. These things are both true. So the good shepherd does not lose his life in an, in an attempt to save the sheep. His life is not taken from him, but he lays it down. We see this again clearly 
in Acts chapter 4, even though men think that they're putting Jesus to death, even though they maybe think they've won some great victory over him, that's really not what happened when, when Peter preaches his first sermon. So in Acts chapter 4 and verse 27, Peter says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. <laughs> Those evil, wicked people put Jesus to death according to the plan of God, according to the willingness of our Savior, our shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep. They did what they wanted, but God was doing what he wanted all along because he had a plan and a purpose. He does not lose his life. He gives his life. It is his to give for the sheep, and it's his to take up again, pointing to the resurrection, which is not far off from this time in the book of John, which we're reading this morning. The resurrection, then, becomes the proof of the truth of Jesus' claims. He raises from the dead again, and his purpose from then on is to call his sheep and to gather his sheep and to lead them into life, life abundant, life abundant. Now, please don't mis mishear me here. I'm not talking a wealth and prosper uh, prosperity and health gospel, okay? But I am talking a life abundant gospel. And I do think in American culture anyway, I'm sure it's different in other countries where, where riches is not an issue. Okay? But in our culture, that, has, that, that heresy has become way too widespread. We're not promising you a rich life. We might be promising you suffering and persecution. But, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, back in Psalm 23, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thou art with me. We're promising you Jesus his presence with you, the one who goes before you to keep you safe, to bring you into plenty. We're talking abundant life, not necessarily riches. Do you understand riches, how, how temporal they are, how quickly they fade? You know, leave it on the countertop for a long time and see how long, how, how long until it begins to rust and fade. Worthless, worthless. But Jesus comes, he has, he has given his life to take the stroke that is due to sheep he has risen from the dead to lead them into an abundant life. And the word I like for life for this is just satisfying. Satisfying life. You know, life without Christ is just unsatisfying. You know, and I don't, I don't mean to depress, but sometimes I get most depressed just walking around my neighborhood and thinking about this American dream. You know, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage with a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house. Is this all there is? Jesus came that you might have life and that you might have life abundantly. There is more to this life than this. So, I hope you find this interesting. But I want to go back to where, where I started. This is not just an intellectual pursuit. This is not just theological discourse. In reality, this is life and death. You know, we can talk about shepherds and sheep and we can think of sheep as cute and whatever you cuddly, however you want to look at it, but this is a life and death issue here. We are all sheep. You can't avoid it. You can call yourself something else, but you're not. You're a sheep. And like most sheep, you're weaker than you realize. You're not as smart as you think you are. You're really not as good looking as sheep are not. Okay? But you are a sheep. And whether you realize it or not, you're in terrible danger of it. 
change. You have not been equipped by your creator to take care of yourself well. And so then we wonder why life doesn't work. Okay? You're a sheep. And we need, as sheep, we need a rescuer. One of the greatest sins, one of the greatest sins is for us to think that we are independent creatures and we are not. And I think salvation sometimes, sometimes happens best in the context of understanding that you need, you need a Savior. You're not independent. You're not on your own, no matter what you've achieved or where you've been. You are a, shep- you are a sheep in need of a shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows his own. He's the owner of the sheep. He says, I know my own. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. He lays down his life for his sheep. He has done all that is necessary for you to have life abundant. And by the way, one more definition of life abundant is life eternal. If you're walking through life thinking this is all there is, this is such a fraction. There is a life to come. Hebrews 9 tells us that it's appointed to man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You can deny that if you want to, but here's a saying I like to teach my kids very early on. (laughs) You can ignore reality for a while, but you cannot ignore the consequences of ignoring reality forever. There is a judgment coming, and you're a sheep. You need a shepherd. So if this morning you have never considered the claims of Christ, you have maybe been around the church for a long time, you've heard all the stories about Jesus. He sounds like a nice, good person. It's more serious than that. He's not just a figure on the flannel graph. He's not just the cute little David out in the field with some sheep. He is a savior. He is one who has taken the stroke due to you. He has laid down his life. He has given up his very blood. And then he has taken his life up again. He has sacrificed his life to pay for your sins, and he has taken it up again that he might lead you into abundant life. And today, I'll end where I started. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus in this new year? Here's your opportunity. You now cannot say, I did not know. By the grace of God, you've heard. You need a Savior. You need a shepherd. And Jesus is that shepherd. And to those of you who have trusted in Christ, there is plenty here for you because you should rejoice in your good shepherd. You should remind yourself all the time that he is the one that paid the penalty for you. But that's not all there is. He has called you to follow him. He has done all these things on your behalf, but he has called you to follow him that he might lead you into a real, true, abundant, everlasting life. To lead you into life. Rejoice. Rejoice in your good shepherd. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that it is not an ordinary word, and we acknowledge our own feebleness in communicating this word, Lord, but we trust in you to use this and to send forth your spirit and apply this. Lord, may those who are down be lifted up. Uh, May those who uh, are frustrated be encouraged. May those who have rejected you over and over and over listen and hear the voice of the shepherd. In his name we pray. Amen.